1: So I've been teaching about the view, meditation, and action, or conduct, the result of the great perfections, oak chen, the peak vehicle, Mahati, the great consummation, Mahasamdi in Sanskrit, as Trungpa liked to call it, Maha'ati, the peak vehicle, or the view from above, the bigger picture. Not getting caught up in the trees, but glimpsing the whole forest at once, like the view from above, not being lost in the trees which are in our face but also having the bigger picture in mind as we negotiate relative decisions and turnings amidst the trees, amidst the alleys and byways of Skyscraperville, the big forest. So view, meditation, and now today we get to the action, the conduct of the bodhisattvas, spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity, not reactive ego-based karmic activity or reactivity. Obviously, we've talked a lot of things, Buddhist teachings, Dzogchen, pith instructions, and tips and pointers, meditation instructions, and other things that came up with questions, answers, and along the way. But we shouldn't, you know, ignore like the basic humanistic issues that we all know are important and that are sort of implicit in this. Eastern thought approach. Words like love, words like forgiveness, words like gratitude, which are not emphasized so much in the old Asian Buddhist scriptures, because they're implicit, like in the four Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Loving kindness is emphasized in Buddhism. Maitri, friendliness, wishing others well, loving kindness, metta, Not exactly the word love, which is so easily conflated with, confused with, mixed with lust, desire, personal love, selfish love, I'll love you, you know, depending on how you act to me, and so on. But bigger love, loving kindness, compassion, feeling what others feel, joy, or rejoicing in their success, not competing, and equal to all, impartial, is the four face of Buddhist love. So this is very important, and that's why we chanted the four boundless in the beginning. It's in the prayer book there, and other thoughts that we could remember. So as far as like action, rather than going through the ten paramitas, the transformative practices, and putting them on the board, another list to memorize, or to look at, or to gape at, with slack jaw. You can read about it, it's the table of contents of my book, Buddhas as Buddha does, the ten transformative practices for enlightened living, the ten perfections, the ten paramitas, how do you want to translate it? The ten Buddhist virtues, the ten virtues of the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva code, however you want to translate it, in Sanskrit, the ten paramitas, in Pali, the ten paramis, the transformative virtues or panacean virtues of the Bodhi of the unselfish. Voted to be the Bodhisattva, the spiritual edifier and awakener, the Bodhisattva. Trungpa Rinpoche calls it the spiritual warrior, the Bodhisattva. So, of course, love is the bottom line, we could say, but we could also say truth is the bottom line, or authenticity. So whichever word you choose, or whatever you think is important or looking for in life, or you know, whatever your spiritual background is, obviously in Christianity, I'm not going to opine about Judaism since I don't know much about it. In Christianity, love is the main message. It's very important to recognize whether we ourselves are becoming more loving, unselfish, giving, which is the first of the ten paramitas of the Bodhisattva Code. Generosity, giving, open, and so on. And so on. Are we more loving or more tight or more proud or better than others? More spiritual? More haughty? We have to watch out for these pitfalls and potholes on the spiritual path, such as pride, arrogance, and other things, or just being too mental or intellectual about it and making it just a mere subject of study. As Trumpa would say, and I could practically quote him on this because he always used to make this kind of comment, Why memorize all these theological ideas unless you're getting paid for it? (laughs) I mean, if you're a professor or like that's your PhD dissertation, that's a little different. Is that our situation here? Probably not. Elsewhere, you said something about it's like dancing on books. mere dancing on books, which, you know, like, it's just, the books are just getting in the way from the point of view of dancing, actually, which is more our subject, dancing and singing and being ourselves authentically. So everybody knows, and we're all, all, I'm looking around the room, I'm straining, I'm studying hard, I I don't want to make any uh, mistakes or leave anyone out. We're all upper We're all, what do I always say, we're all mm, overeducated, white, members of the upper-middle path. We all know to love our enemies, that love is important, is the main thing, but how? We all know the golden rule, treat others as you would be treated, but how to hell? When we are so reactive. So Buddha's, uh, this, uh, this path of awakening, I believe, this dharma helps us be less selfish, more giving, self-giving, karitas, self-giving, charitable and selfless. Not just writing a check to get our name on the wall or giving a dollar to a panhandler to get them out of our way on the sidewalk. But self-giving, which is not just about material things, but giving of ourselves our time and energy and so on. Or giving support or protection or lending a shoulder and ear so not just treating others as we would be treated the golden rule which is fine and we all know that we don't have to come here to do that to hear about more about preaching about that but how? moreover we treat ourselves like shit so much of the time so maybe the new golden rule or perhaps the diamond rule could be or should be treat others as we would have our beloved child be treated so that we're not cutting or doing other things that we sometimes do to ourselves. Treat others as you would be treated. It's a little idealistic. Treat others as we would have our beloved to be treated, our beloved child, to make the point, graphically. Or even more beyond the diamond rule, of Vajra rule, the kryptonite rule. The uranium, the platinum uranium rule. See the light in everyone and everything. Then we will naturally treat others as we would have our beloved child be treated. So that is the action, the conduct, the natural love, the natural compassion, the natural generosity, the natural ethical morality. I'm going through the 10 parameters. I knew you wanted this. The natural natural patient forbearance acceptance the natural enthusiastic joyous energy, the natural mindful focus, the natural discerning wisdom, the natural skillful means, and so forth of the bodhisattvas. All the ten panacean virtues, the ten ten paramitas. No, doctor, not the ten paramecium, as one doctor asked me about. (laughs) Ten paramitas. It's all in this Rigpa practice. That's why it's not stressed here. It's the natural love and compassion that's in all of our hearts, our good hearts, our better selves, our highest selves. That's in all of us. The natural love and compassion, equal to impartiality, you know, treating others equally, not just our kids, but also the neighbor kids and even the neighbors or our competitors also. So this is called attitude transformation, Mahayana Lojong. It's a big subject we didn't you know, stress here this week. But, of course, it comes with all of this loving-kindness cultivation and compassion meditation cultivation and so on, recognizing others want the need the same as we do. Others want to be safe and sane and healthy and protected and secure and their kids and families and communities and villages and land and country. Yes, the same, just like we do. If you travel, you find out how people are so much the same everywhere, although it sure looks various as you go around the world, different, but how different from the point of view of family, of giving birth, dealing with birth and death and illness and other loss and change in the world, not that different. So love here is the bottom line, but in Buddhism love means loving kindness, wishing others well, compassion, feeling with them, empathizing like non-separate. Resonating with them. Joy. Rejoicing in their success or goodness, not just envy and covetousness. And fourth, equanimity or equal to all, impartiality. How can it be big love, Buddha's love, Jesus' love, if it's very partial and we only love the ones we like or that stroke our ego or our family or our people or even our species? What about the others? You know, the other species too, they don't wanna lose their, their little ones and they fight like to the death to protect their cubs and so on. So, In Buddhism, self-interest or selfishness is the demon, is the main poison. Egotism, selfishness, not something outside, not a disease, not enemies that take our lives, not your difficult whoever, ex or boss or employee, or colleague, or neighbor, or whatever. The the demon, the main culprit, is egotism, which really means the delusion of separateness. So, illusion, delusion, delusion, ignorance is the main collation, the main problem. That's why wisdom is the panacea, at least in this path of enlightenment. So we can awaken, enlightenment means awakening, awakening from the sleep of delusion. That's the conduct. That's the natural action of the bodhisattvas. Just like plants, because of chlorophyll, reach to the light, to the sun. I'm talking about green plants. For you botanists, don't start overthinking and criticizing. I don't know anything about this area. This is a metaphor. Just as green plants reach for the sun, because of chlorophyll, beings like us reach for the light of spirit. Go around the world and you'll see. It's a timeless evergreen subject everywhere. Why? Because people have to deal with death, and the unknown, and fears, and the loss is involved. So everybody's thinking about something bigger than just this body, or this moment, or this day. And even if some people aren't thinking about it now, collectively, their race, their tribe, their group has thought about it and always will and does. So our spirit, our bodhicitta, is always reaching for the light. That's the innate bodhicitta. Even if we're a selfish bastard, we're still seeking something like happiness. We may be seeking in a bottle or a syringe or in some bent-out-of-shape way, but it's still the natural reaching for the light. So this is the natural conduct of the bodhisattvas. We're all Buddhas-to-be. We're all in the awakening way. We're never out of the flow We don't always have to try to get into the flow, as they say in the New Age. The flow goes right through us. So this is the true, innate, natural bodhicitta that naturally loves our loved ones, even if maybe we don't love ourselves that much, or worse, we have self-hatred or self-loathing for whatever reason. Still there is love in our hearts somewhere, and we all prioritize that, and we all care. So this is the conduct or the activity, the action of the bodhisattvas. Coming from the view of the great perfection of how things are and can be comes the meditation of getting used to that. Seeing it as it is leads to leaving it as it is and getting used to that. And then being easy as is, as whatever is wanted and needed. If there are waves, then the ocean has waves. Sorry. If there's wind, waves. No wind, no waves. If there are conditions, then clouds arise. No conditions for that. The ocean doesn't need to produce clouds, neurotically, to entertain itself. So the great doing of non-doing, as somebody said about Tao, is the translation of the great non-action. So this includes all of the transformative practices, the great Buddhist virtues of generosity and service, serving God through serving humanity, as they say in India, or more non-theistically, Buddhism is a non-theistic religion, not atheistic, non-theistic religion. Serving the highest or serving the lowest, the littlest, the weakest, the smallest, every detail, everyone. Seva in Sanskrit, service, selfless service, not being a servant. More like servant leadership, as Greenleaf famously wrote about it in the classic on selfless service-oriented leadership, the Bodhisattva way. I'll call it servant leadership, not leading servants, being a service-oriented leader, like Archbishop Tutu, the Dalai Lama. I suppose, I don't know him. Jimmy Carter, I know I'm coming up with all men. Uh, Ang San Suu of Burma, there's a woman and so and others. Mother Teresa, I suppose, I never met her. The Bodhisattva leader. The wisdom-based, service-oriented, unselfish leader. And now we're entering into a you know the another cycle of national politics. It seems to be every two years now rather than four. I don't know why. <laughs> if that's subjective or outside, things are moving faster. And we we if we feel incumbent upon us. We have to deal with that and even participate and and contribute. We can't just pretend to drop out. Even a hermit is still participating, interconnected with everything that's going on. I've heard spiritual teachers say not to vote, not to get in politics. They're entitled to their opinion, but I don't think that's very um, intelligent today. That's maybe a very old world where one could be an isolationist, not in today's postmodern, very interconnected global reality. So doing our part, being a bodhisattva, shining light in our corner, which really is a whole world. Doing what we can, giving, contributing, outer, inner and secretly, outer with material, inner with energy and time and care and secretly being in touch with non-attachment, with contentment and abundance in the secret level of Dāna-paramita, giving, of self-giving. The ultimate generosity, non-attachment, or as we say in Tibetan because it's a total Buddhist theocracy in Tibet, the ultimate generosity is giving dharma, not just giving food or medicine. Because dharma frees people, it's like wisdom helps people live Always just giving them a fish doesn't help that much, but teaching them how to fish becomes a livelihood for them and their, and their descendants. So how can we recondition our selfishness? That's what this practice is about, letting go of our habitual reactive tendencies and conditionings and being more accepting, settled, transparent, aware Having a perspective on what's going on outside and inside, not just being caught up in it reactively, according to our karmic conditioning. So that's how we take this into the world. Of course, we might very well need, want or need, and I recommend having a daily practice, let's say every morning, you know, as soon as you, you say something, it's against something else. It doesn't have to be in the morning. we a daily practice. It's good to do it every morning before the rest of the world gets with you and needs you and all that. But it could be at night if you're a night owl or during the day or twice a day as people do. A formal practice and also weekly practice with a group could be helpful and supportive and monthly or quarterly or annual retreat to recharge the battery, things like that. But also integrating it with every part of daily life, not just for half an hour, an hour in the yoga mat or the meditation seat in the morning or once a week at your at your place, church, whatever you call it, yoga studio, sitting group, mosque, kaven, whatever it is. Book study group, you know, whatever it is. But every moment of the day, bringing this view, seeing it as it is, not as it ain't. When we become clear, everything becomes clearer. Naturally, our decisions and our actions will be more appropriate. It's very difficult to drive if we don't clear our windshield once in a while of all the schmutz and caca that accumulates there, especially if it's piss and rain, not just the usual collection of schmutz and caca on our windscreen. So when I become clear, everything becomes clearer. We don't really need to understand, why does it just like, you know, I don't like washing up, why do I have to wash up the windshield all the time? Well, then don't. See what happens. <laughs> you're, the, you're in the driver's seat, man. But how does cleaning that outside help me? I'm in here in my car listening to my, I don't know what, satellite radio. What's the relationship? Well, take a breath and step back and think a little deeply, please. Please. Otherwise, carry on. Carry on. But don't let anybody else get in your car <laughs> if it's going to move. So, when I become clearer, everything becomes clearer. Well, so we don't necessarily have to be daunted by the vastness of the problems we have today. They are vast global warming and climate change and other things too, racism and you know, war and terrorism. There's too many to mention. Even here at home, poverty and inequality of opportunity and other things. But as it says in the Talmud, the Jewish wisdom scripture, to save a life is to save a whole world. It's an awesome thought, friends, even though it's not Buddhist, I know. It's an awesome thought if it resonates with you. If it doesn't resonate, let me try another angle. To lose a child is to lose your whole world. So to save a life is to save a whole world. So one by one, also important. Thinking globally, but acting locally, beginning with ourselves and each other, taking care of our garden and our litter and our mess and our locale and our body and home and everything, as well as thinking about the bigger world and bigger issues depending on our scope and where we are in life, and what stage we're at, and all the rest, what's possible. So intention and motivation is crucial. That's the bodhisattva vow. To bring all beings together beyond suffering and to... freedom, enlightenment, peace and contentment. Not complacence, but contentment. It's a big difference. Contentment is the ultimate form of wealth. So integrating the dharma into daily life, of course with good deeds and positive acts and generosity and ethics and everything else you can find this in every religion, every code. I'm not going to behind that axe any further here. But from the point of Dzogchen, everything is part of the practice. That's why we emphasize open eyes and open ears and everything open. Not just closing your eyes and trying to get away from it all and thinking about your own happiness, self-growth or even enlightenment. But bring it forth in life. Of course, having your daily morning practice or whatever, but the rest of the uh, 23 hours is also important, isn't it? That's where the rubber really meets the road on the path of life, of spiritual awakening, of reality, of a meaningful existence, individually and collectively meaningful existence. So, I like to recommend also many moments of mindfulness or moments of imoho throughout the day rather than waiting for a few. Prolongies on the weekend or next summer or in the morning. That's why I always say, translating from Tibetan, the Dzogchen Pith instruction, many quickies rather than few longies. Many quickies, oft repeated, to get used to the view rather than few prolongies, trying to have a longer and longer holding pattern meditation in the familiar comfort zone, as we usually think about it. Many quickies, oft repeated keeping it fresh, riding the crest of nowness, cutting through again and again, perforating the solidity of a claustrophobic day. Any time, many times a day, taking a breath, breathing out, looking at the sky, saying, ah, whatever it is for you, 10 seconds, a minute, three minutes, how long does it take to reconnect in that way to the view, to being, to the Buddha within? What words do we need to put on this? To your own highest self or true nature. The Muslims, bless their souls, stop everything five times a day and put out their prayer rugs and bow to Mecca. Are you familiar? You should be in this diversity world and society we live in. Five times a day. Who does that here? I mean, take five minutes, five times a day. It'll change your life. Take five minutes to do this kind of practice. You don't need to bow to the east, to bodh Gaia. Or to me, <laughs> you don't need a rug, you don't need to kneel. Take five minutes, five times a day. Don't say, oh, I don't have time for, you know, an hour in the morning before I go to work, to my you know, first of my three jobs, besides parenting. That's a good story. Okay, maybe you have a minute, one minute, five times a day. During coffee break, lunch break, sitting on the bus, taking the commuter train, waiting for the plane. You know, we're just outside waiting for, on the corner for the light to change. HaYimaho. <sighs> I mean, five seconds, five times a day. I guarantee it would transform your life if you did that five times a day for five seconds. I mean, what would be enough? How long does it take to awaken? The alarm clock of reality is always ringing. When are we going to take the pillow off our ears? (sighs) Ooh, no pillow. Mm, How sweet it is. How absurd. (sighs) And I was getting caught up in it. Silly me. That's all it takes. Maybe 10 seconds. Five times a day. Please try it. My buddy, Meng Chengde, who who used to be the PR head of Google in California, he's one of Google's first employees. He has a number like 62 of the like 100,000 employees, you know, numbers they're up to. He teaches Search Inside Yourself. He has a bestseller of that title. He has Search Inside Yourself program within Google that he now funds as like a charity in the Google University. He recommends 11 second meditations for executives." He says, Google executives don't have, you know, 11 minutes, not to mention an hour. 11 seconds should be enough to awaken. They're smart. (laughs) So I just passed that on to you. So I said, you know, being square, like in my old age, I'm becoming more conservative. It's really funny. Now I'm the conservative one. The old llama who speaks Tibetan and all. I'm the conservative, like the Pope. Meng! Can you like at least have to meditate for like three minutes? He said, they don't have three minutes, 11 seconds, that's the right amount. <laughs> I'm advocating longer, you know, three minutes. <laughs> so I just pass that on to you, everything's possible, everything's improvisational, ride the crest of nowness. Take a moment, take a breath. Breathe, relax, and smile, you know, imaho. it doesn't take that long. Perforate the solidity of a day. Let the fresh air of naked awareness blow through your claustrophobic day, caught up in the head, whatever. I don't know about you, but my head ain't the best neighborhood for me to live in. <laughs> so there's a lot else we could talk about, about view, meditation, action and conduct, the time's going. I want to mention just both that enhancement, taking it to the next level, you know, beyond Buddhism or isms, beyond polarity, sort of dualistic thinking, like spiritual or mundane, or religion or not religion, or good and bad, and just really step up, raise the gaze, break out of the box, explore the unexpected, or try something different. To put it in English, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, just try to change some habit and you'll see the resistance that you have. It could be very interesting. Like how you always turn around this way in the shower and not this way. Try turning the other way, see. Be... Then you get a glimpse into how conditioned we are about the things we're not, you that know, really matter, that are going on all the time. It should be easy to turn around the other way in the shower, isn't it? But it's like fighting upstream. Everybody, cross your arms. Now try to cross him the other way. It's kind of awkward. (laughs) Why is that? Is one arm longer than the other? (laughs) Maybe I'm doing it wrong. (laughs) It's hard to change our habits. We're very heavily conditioned. This is nothing. How about how we think, how we react, how we breathe, how we walk, how we eat, how we relate. Moment to moment. Try to break out, recondition and decondition. This practice is mostly about deconditioning, just being, but now we're talking about conduct, not view and unmeditation. So in conduct, reconditioning in a positive way like the bodhisattvas, becoming a better person and contributing to a better world in the relative sphere where we actually live view meditation and action or conduct of the great natural great perfection three in one like three in one oil definitely help everything move more smoothly thank you